Our guest today on Moment to Moment is celebrated indie darling Heidi Greensmith. We wanted to start off by asking, how do you feel about the movement of women in film in Hollywood and the changes that are taking place almost on a daily basis now? It's about time, right? We've had so long of seeing the world through men's eyes that now we get to see the world through women's eyes too. It should have always been. She just thought, right, what should we do in lockdown? She got myself and two female writers and directors. Every evening we'd be Zooming and writing together the whole storyline for a whole series. And then we wrote and directed and shot the pilot in really early lockdown. Oh, right at the peak of when... Like literally had just locked down and we're making a TV show. I was writing that at three o'clock in the morning every day when I was up on my own in the house and it was the middle of the night. I would just be writing. I'd be writing while I was feeding. I'd be writing because I couldn't get back to sleep. I'd be writing in the afternoon when the baby was asleep. And then from that, I kind of couldn't stop writing. I loved it so much because it felt so good for me. It was like, I can't believe I haven't been doing this all this time. Right. And I thought, God, I'm lucky. You know, I've got that forever now, that thing that can take me to another world. Aloha Pods presents Moment to Moment a series of intimate conversations with influential artists revealing the formative moments that have helped shape the artists they have become today. From Oscar-winning writers and directors to Grammy-winning performers and songwriters, listen in as each guest shares their most personal struggles, their greatest victories, and the lessons they have learned along the way. Moment to Moment is about the defining moments that have helped turn what was once a dream into a reality. Listen and subscribe now at alohapods.com. Our guest today on Moment to Moment is celebrated indie darling Heidi Greensmith. Heidi, thank you for joining us on Moment to Moment. Oh, it's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We wanted to start off by asking, how do you feel about the movement of women in film in Hollywood and the changes that are taking place almost on a daily basis now? It's about time, right? And it's, (laughs) uh, (laughs) I think it's like the train that's not going to stop. So it's got the traction and it's going fast. And I'm really excited about it. We've had so long of seeing the world through men's eyes, you know, really, because the tiny fraction of films being made by women was so insignificant amount Mm -hmm. that now we get to see the world through women's eyes too it's just a wonderful thing it couldn't be um you know it should have always been but we'll see the difference and what's wonderful is I've got young children and they'll I'm hoping that they'll grow up watching an equal amount of people's visions let me ask you this what is the hopefulness or expectation around the new landscape with more of the female vision what are you looking forward to for the types of films your children may now have a chance to see I think really it is that sort of basic sort of view of the world. Men and women see things differently. That's no um, secret. Right. We just do. An entire art form has been seen by what, you know, 50% of the population for all these years. And now the tide has turned and we're going to get this sort of rebalance. And the stories that come from that will be more diverse in so many ways because women look for different things. And obviously I'm speaking in uh, sort of general terms, but 
women do tend to look for different types of stories and different tones of stories. So we're going to get so much more diversity, I think, along with that. That's wonderful. You know, I'm really excited about your work with Emergent Pictures. I know you were announced to work on, this is a female producing team of Marissa Vitale and Claire McClanahan, and they've tapped you to, I think, Helm Carbon, their first project, which I... Yes. But can you talk about that a little bit? Well, we were, unfortunately, like so many right. movies, we've been pushed from last year. Mm-hmm. And so everyone's playing catch up and suddenly it's almost like there's two years worth of films trying to be shot in a year. So booking cast and crew and it's a bit of a sort of scramble. Oh, so yeah. <laughs> we, <laughs> we are still plowing on and we are still casting and it's looking really great so yeah we're hoping to shoot as soon as we can well i know you've been busy during the downtime i'm very intrigued by the agoraphobic detective that you had a hand in there with brian cox and a uk producer another female producer maggie monteith who i recently through our dear friend alexandra had the great pleasure of meeting and she is just a firecracker she's amazing what's it like (laughs) for you working with these different female producers and their vision and executing that tone that you touched on earlier versus perhaps other experiences you may have had it was a marvel of modern science that project it was so amazing so it came out of maggie's mentally massive brain (laughs) and she just thought right what should we do in lockdown i know (laughs) let's make the first ever lockdown tv show sounds like maggie and she did it and she got myself and wonderful gorgeous Dolly Wells and the equally wonderful and gorgeous Susie Ewing, two female writers and directors. And Dolly's also a fantastic actress. And together every evening we'd be Zooming and writing together all the episodes and the whole storyline for a whole series. And then we wrote and directed and shot the pilot in really early lockdown. Like it was... Nuts. We were doing this in March, April last year. Oh, right at the peak of when... Like literally had just locked down and we're making a TV show in it and sending the cast cameras. What was that like? Because at that time, um, you know, we nobody really knew what this was. There was so little information. We were all terrified. Did that imbue the production with a different sense? Do you know what it was? It was a fantastic distraction. Because everything was sort of heightened when it was all just started and no one knew what was going on and everyone had these black mirror storylines in their own heads playing out. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) And and instead of the black mirror storyline, we focused on a different one that we were making up and we were making up every day and it was such a relief honestly it was just such a tonic I wish everyone could have had that to take their minds off it and me and the girls had such a laugh together (laughs) and we would look forward to our zooms at night where we just laugh our socks off and it was a complete tonic what was it like filming and directing through zoom from home and of course for our audience who may be aware Brian Cox had just had a huge hit on HBO Succession, which is going well. I believe also Dolly, you mentioned, was from Dracula. Clay's Bang was from The Square. These are actors and actresses that really have come into their own and had some momentum. But to have the opportunity not on set to touch and fix and move, what was that like from home? It was a major learning curve. It was really 
a massive lesson in trying to change something that you'd stuck rigidly to. For, like, for example, I cannot stand low-quality visuals, but I want to shoot everything on film. Of course. I went to a very old-fashioned, very hardcore film school where we only had film. We didn't ever have a digital camera when I went to film school. And so then suddenly people are saying things like, film them from their computer camera. And I'm like... What? And you're having this clockwork orange reaction. Your skin is starting to crawl a little bit. (laughs) But once I, it was a lesson in letting go, it really was. And once I had, (laughs) and I thought, look, they've given me Brian Cox. Like, how lucky am I? So we split up all the actors and characters, and we had two characters each that we wrote. Mm -hmm. And so one of mine was played by Brian Cox and the other one was by the brilliant Grace Van Patten. Uh-huh. So I was just so lucky to be working with these two incredible actors that I just had to forget all that other stuff. Mm. And actually it came out way better than I thought it would with the equipment that we had. Well, let's get into the technical part of that. So on a set, you can kind of see what's working between the actors hitting the tennis ball as it were back and forth and make adjustments. Or how do you tell if the scene is working, if what's been written is landing? How do you do that through the two-dimensional screen? And how do you then make adjustments when you're not getting what you want as the director? The series is based on a Zoom call that they all have with each other. We had to kind of do it live to get all their reactions because otherwise it was completely nuts for them all. And they're all in their own homes looking at their computers. So it's not like we're making this stuff up. They're actually doing what we're filming. Yes. I want to go back a little bit and sort of from the beginning. I know you're one of seven children. Uh, Where did you fall in the litter and what was that like growing up in that household? It was completely nuts we were six girls and one boy oh and the my. boy came first oh the poor thing <laughs> thank god the one saving grace is he got out early <laughs> i was number six in a litter i was kind of in the worst place right <laughs> i was like not the youngest and i was not the eldest and i was kind of like the bit where they were really tired <laughs> <laughs> and then i remember getting a television in my bedroom and my whole world blew open that's where my love of film started and what were you influenced I just by obsessively watched well i loved all the old 70s movies I got the TV just as uh, Channel 4 started. Ah. So I had all the sort of film for fodder, you know. So Mm -hmm. I had sort of my beautiful laundrette and Letters to Brezhnev and all those really incredible sort of first independent movies from those great directors. And beautifully shot Um, as well. I was just blown away at how brave these filmmakers were and the actors were. And it was like a whole new world what's your earliest creative memory where you went from absorbing all of this to then striking out whether it's writing or then you decided where did you first pick up the pen is what i'm sort of tiptoeing around i was directing way before i started writing so it went that way around so i started off acting so i was watching all these movies thinking i wanted to be an actor and i would sort of act out some of the scenes in my bedroom and think that's it I want to be an actor because I'm really good at acting out all these scenes Mm -hmm. on my own Mm -hmm. (laughs) after I left school I went and studied drama Mm -hmm. 
because I thought I wanted to be an actor. And then I was doing all the plays and I kept getting into fights with the directors. And I would be like, that's not what we should be doing, right? Like, how can they not see that? That's definitely not what we should do. And that went on for the whole time I was there. And I kept getting pulled out of the class and said, look, you've got to listen to the director. And I'm like, yeah, but they're not doing it right and they're wrong. And in the end, actually, the guy who was running the course said to me, I think you should be looking at directing. Was that a polite way of saying that as the actress on a play, you were brightening up the room by leaving it? (laughs) (laughs) i'm teasing oh that sounds very interesting that that side of you started to rear its head at what point did you then switch over and say the best way to create is to create my own work to direct well on my first child just before i had him i was at home and i was thinking i can't work i'm gonna have a baby and i felt compelled to start writing so i started writing just before i had him and then when i had him i just carried on and i never stopped from then and i just think it actually kept me sane i really do believe that that sort of shock to the system of having a baby creates a change in you and even just the hormonal change that's needs a little bit of help and i think writing was a real savior in that way you know it kind of even even if it's just the basics of not being able to go out because you're on your own with a baby and the baby needs feeding all the time Mm -hmm. and in those very early days where your whole life changes completely I think because I had the writing, it really kept me sane because I could just have this other world outside of the sort of mundanity of feeding the baby. I went from shooting music videos and having this crazy life and traveling everywhere to being in the house with a tiny baby. And it's a huge change. And I think a lot of people don't realize for any women, what that change does. What I really grabbed from what you were saying was that most women, when their careers are going, and I'm speaking mostly in Hollywood, where they sort of have a trajectory and and things are successful and you're getting called a lot to do these videos of people from Fat Boy Slim to all the way, the whole eclectic, uh, I know Reef, obviously you've had some experience working with as well, which we'll get to. But through all that, when motherhood hits, and I can only imagine it's the most fulfilling, gratifying experience imaginable, but at the same time, for most women, that one track that was going potentially you have anxiety about or saying, wow, am I going to be able to work now? My mother, how does that change? And where most may either feel like, well, that was a good run. I found that you reinvented yourself or you found another outlet that was not just cathartic and helpful, but creatively another way to channel your talent, which was writing. Absolutely. And it came actually from the kids. The film that I started writing in those sort of foggy days of feeding babies was about a child. Mm. And it was about a mother's love for the child. But it wasn't about giving birth or, you know, actually the first scene is a birth scene, but it was nothing to do with my birth Mm -hmm. or or my babies. It was about the bond between uh, a mother and her child. Wait, I'm sorry. Is this he made the stars for me also yeah oh i love that script and i remember those first few pages with birth and the daughter and the mother it's so visceral it's so deeply effective before we and then it takes us off to the sea and what happens later but i totally forgot that that film of yours the script starts out with a mother giving birth you wrote that early that's the first thing i ever wrote unbelievable 
I was writing that at three o'clock in the morning every day when I was up on my own in the house. It was the middle of the night and I was feeding the baby. I would just be writing. I'd be writing while I was feeding. I'd be writing because I couldn't get back to sleep. I'd be writing in the afternoon when the baby was asleep. And that's how I wrote that. And then from that, I kind of couldn't stop writing. I I loved it so much because it felt so good for me. It was like, I can't believe I haven't been doing this all this time. Right. The other day, it was funny, Frankie, I was walking back from a dog walk and I was feeling quite sort of anxious about some news had crept in and I'd been sort of anxious about whatever I'd heard. And I thought, oh, it doesn't matter. I'll go home and write a couple of pages of what I'm working on. And I thought, God, I'm lucky. You know, I've got that forever now. Yeah. Forever I've got that thing that can take me to another world. When was the moment where Conan O'Brien said once, there's nothing more intoxicating than coming to terms with an ability? When was that for you with the writing that it became more than I'm stitching these scenes during breastfeeding where either someone else saw the work and let's just stay with that. He made the stars for me also project or another one where someone else was touched, moved or found beauty in your work when it clicked for you that not only this is cathartic, but I can do this. I can be good at this. Oh, God, I still haven't got to that bit. (laughs) (laughs) Frankie, I'll let you know when that happens. (laughs) Yeah. You're so humble. (laughs) At least the initial part of, okay, this doesn't suck enough for a producer to, you know what I'm saying, that initial (laughs) moment of valid, let's not say validation, encouragement. Where was the moment of encouragement? It was probably when I'd shot my first feature, Winter, Mm. and people had started watching it and then telling me nice things about it. And then it did some festivals and then it won some prizes. And then... That was when I started thinking, oh, I might get the license to do this again. It was then when approximately a dozen film festivals and reviews from around the globe came in about your film Winter. Tommy Flanagan gives easily the finest transcendent performance of his career. The film is shot and imbued with a sense of a documentarian immediacy where the feelings are palpable. Everything is there. There's a kinetic energy to the shots. What can you tell us about how that project developed, how it came to you creatively, both as a writer and director, and how you envisioned it? It really was like a dream, that film, in that it happened very quickly and unexpectedly. There was a financier who had read it through a friend and he was about to finance another movie and he actually saw something in that movie that really, really got him. And he said, you know, I want to finance your movie and there you go. And so suddenly I was off and I hadn't been able to think about it for very long at all. It was nuts. And so I just thought, well, this is meant to be. And then the casting director, Des Hamilton, who was a huge fan of the film, suggested Tommy. And Tommy and I met in London and instantly got on you know in five minutes i knew he was the one he was your guy we hit it off so well so quickly and then it just all sort of snowballed (laughs) well it's Um, funny most of our american audiences will remember tommy of course first from braveheart uh playing a great supporting role but then mostly from sons of anarchy you know he played chibs and then also from guardians of the galaxy and he completely went to a place that as far as 
our audience base has never seen him go. When you first met him and you had the same sort of, well, is he right for this part? What did you see in the actor and his instrument that resonated with you that he was your guy? I just knew that there was a lot of sadness, I suppose, that he hadn't tapped into because he hadn't been given it in any other role. Sure enough, he was just expert at accessing that, those sad depths that he could go to and that troubled sort of soul that he could draw upon. How challenging was that when you were on set to draw that out or how easily did that come out when it came to the process of bringing that to the surface? We were so close so quickly, Tommy and I, and knew each other's, uh, he knew how I was directing with him and I knew what he was giving me and how, that it became very easy. It was kind of like, it it just happened. Um, I mean, I think it was quite draining in Mm. the end for Tommy because he did have to, it did bring up, quite a lot of trauma for him i think he was immensely proud of it there was no trace of quote-unquote performance it just seemed like behavior especially the scenes with him and the son i mean you're touching on themes between father and son, loss an artist having the courage or boldness to pick up the brush again what did the movie mean for you or the themes that you were trying to explore and convey I lost my mum and my father wasn't the greatest Mm -hmm. at, um, you know, handling us kids and our grief during his time of grieving. And even just before she died. How old were you when she passed? I was 29. And so I was drawing on that really. And I also, by accident, I went to see this exhibition by Paul Benet, the artist who we feature in the film. All the paintings are by Paul Benet. And I walked into this exhibition and it was like he'd painted every painting that was in the film, but he'd already painted them and I'd already written the film and neither of us had ever met and I'd never seen his (laughs) painting. Even so much so that I walked up to the first painting and it was an incredible painting of a man with his head on fire. And I'd written that as the first painting that Woods painted when he picked up the brush. Oh, right. And I got shivers and I had to go and find this artist that I'd never met the costume and say you just you just painted all the paintings in my film that I haven't even made yet. <laughs> How did that conversation go? <laughs> well, luckily he just is the most incredible person, Paul Benny. I absolutely adore him. He said, you can have them. You can have all of them. I love the sound of your film. I love it. You can have them. And Paul told me he had so many parallels with the story. Um, You know, he told me loads of stories about himself that really echoed things that Woods was going through. It was amazing. Which you either didn't or couldn't have known when you wrote it, correct? I didn't know any of it. Oh, that's spooky. I didn't know any of it. That is spooky. That is spooky. What I found really remarkable about a film like this is that by having the courage and the boldness as a filmmaker to make this film about something very specific, not trying to pander to an audience, no care about genres, which quadrants, but making something where your soul has an itch that needs to scratch in this very specific way. 
that by making it specific, it lands universally for us because we all deal with loss. I've dealt with loss of a mother when I was young. I've dealt with the death of art. People can relate to that. Was that something that you were surprised by or at first apprehensive about that sort of all of your insides and guts were there on the screen, as it were? Yeah, absolutely. Also, I didn't really think I'd make that film, you know? I just... It's funny, when I thought of myself making my first feature when I was making music videos, and I knew I wanted to move into features, I never for one minute imagined it would be winter that would be my first feature. And then I went and wrote it, and I didn't even think I'd write that film. It was... it really did come from somewhere else and now i watch it and i can't even believe i made it it sounds like it um, wrote you versus you wrote you know in the muse yeah it's no secret that you know martin scorsese's first film mean streets was about him growing up in the old neighborhood fellini was a personal story we had on our on our show michael carenti who spoke of federal hill his first film that was very well received about his brother in the Italian neighborhood of uh, Providence, Rhode Island. We had Andy Davis last week here talk about, even though he has a billion dollars in box office gross as a director, his first film, which very few people are aware, was Stony Island, which is a musical film about his brother. It seems that filmmakers often start by writing down the bones and that somehow propels and serves them. In what way do you feel that that served you making a story so personal now as you're moving more into these other realms of fiction or paraphrasings of experience one might say well i'm so glad you told me all those things about all those wonderful filmmakers mm-hmm. um you're in great company heidi that, <laughs> that, <laughs> I know, I am. it's funny it comes out like that isn't it yeah um well maybe we've got it out of us and now we can move on to the fun stuff <laughs> <laughs> the less torturous stuff <laughs> yeah i must just tell you this just talking about sort of influences and growing up and stuff when i was living in London first off on my own and I used to walk down the South Bank to the National Theatre and every year they had the um, Photojournalist of the Year Awards and I went religiously and my favourite photographer and he would often win was Don McCullen and he became like such a hero he was one of the reasons why I wanted to make films and he was definitely one of the reasons why winter looks like it does Uh because I've been really influenced by his photography anyway I moved to this tiny little village in Somerset and somebody said to us one day oh you know there's a photographer he's your neighbor he's over the field and then we bump into none other than Don McCullen. No and way. He, it turns out he's my neighbor in my new no village. No way. So, so <laughs> as if that's not good enough, right? So then after getting to know him and telling him he's one of my all-time heroes, and I invite he and his wife to the screening. And he came out of the screening and he came over to me and he said, Do you know, Heidi, your film, it reminds me of one of my photographs. <laughs> Like, Your heart oh stops. my god i made it right so that was the answer to the question of moment of intoxication thing we've come full circle that had to be <laughs> after making the indie film in the backseat of cars with people doing makeup and sandwiches and a 21 day shoot <laughs> where cast is probably wearing most of their own clothes to have all that yes. happen right that's got to feel so great You've been so generous, and I really appreciate the time here. I want to move forward and just in what you have sort of coming up next. I'm so excited about Casey and Mary. I know that it's actively moving. I'm so excited. I know it's pregnant with possibilities, so you can only say so much about it. But I'm tickled that you sort of came up with this beautiful script and idea with Mark Strong, as I understand it, at one point. So we lived in London 
next to each other. And Mark and I had mutual friends and we ended up living next to each other in these great uh, sort of apartments. Lots of artists all around there and everything. And then we started writing a little short film together and we wrote Casey and Mary as a short and that was it. And then years later, I, I sort of read the short again and I thought, oh, you know, I think there's something in that. This so, is before Mark obviously has been in phenomenal projects of late, like the Kingsman series and Sherlock Holmes. This was sort of before all the blockbusters. This was more as he was probably just being known, starting to be known here on to American audiences, I take it? Yes, absolutely. So he was doing a show called Our Friends from the North with mm-hmm. Daniel Craig. Mm-hmm. He was just starting to do films I think so he'd been in this show that was doing really really well and then he was getting the films as we were writing uh, Casey and Mary Mm. so he went off and got super uber busy and I said do you know I might write that into a feature and he was like go for it and so that's what I did and that ended up being Casey and Mary that's exciting are you able to just sort of give a quick synopsis of what this story is because I have a few questions about your process I'd love to key into yes It's about two chambermaids who work in a hotel and they're down on their luck, severely down on their luck. And (laughs) they are (laughs) wishing that there might be some around the corner. And they go into the filthiest penthouse you've ever seen and they want to just give up because it's just a lot to deal with right now. And Mary sits down on the bed and jumps up because there's a dead rock star in it. And instead of leaving the room, uh, like most normal Normal people people might, (laughs) (laughs) they stay because they got a feeling he might be quite famous and they've never been with a famous person before. So they get overexcited, they lock the door and they take selfies with the corpse with sunglasses on in the hope it might look like he was still alive. Um, From then on, they are persuaded by Casey's horrible stepbrother that they're in terrible trouble and they're probably going to get done for murder and they go on the run. And the minute they go on the run, they make so many mistakes, they, uh, you know, it's going to be hard for them to get back. And that's where the real fun starts. (laughs) Hilarity ensues. (laughs) It's a wonderful weave tale. My question is on your scripts now. I frequently, whether it's Casey and Mary, he made the stars for me also, even potentially Golden Hour. um, There is this sense of your protagonists are these ordinary people from ordinary backgrounds find themselves thrust into these extraordinary circumstances. Is that by design or do you notice that pattern? You're right, but I don't think, oh, this is my thing. Mm. This is what I do. I just write them, and then they're all sort of falling. Now there's a few. There's four I've got going in various directions. Mm. But they've all got similar makeup, like you've just pointed out. And actually, the other common theme is that they are nearly all, well, they are all two-handers, and they are nearly all two women. Yes. And that makes my job much harder. And I don't know why I did it myself. (laughs) (laughs) One could almost say what a more perfect time to be in the zeitgeist, pregnant with possibilities with these two handers, mostly driven by women that a time, you know, like now where these voices will have such a canvas to paint on. Um, That has to be exciting. Yes, I hope. I really hope so. And actually, none of it was by design. It was all by pure accident. So I'm thankful that all those stories came my way, you know. 
Yeah, and you're such a creative force, and yet our audience will be quite surprised uh, to find there's also five children in your house that are different levels. That You're dealing with that as well. How do you have time for all of this to do the career and the family? Do you know, I don't know. I literally don't know. I think I stretch time. I've got some <laughs> magical hours. superpower. Yeah. <laughs> what can you share with budding young female filmmakers, writers who wish to be in the business and find themselves at that crossroads or that Faustian bargain of how do I have it all? And what would you tell them or about the younger version of yourself starting out? I think it's just that it's going to be all encompassing, but never to be scared of that. I think if you're scared of how all encompassing it can be it's going to set you back you know what I mean you've got to embrace that part of it and know it's going to be all-encompassing and know it's going to be really frustrating and really upsetting (laughs) (laughs) but at the same time it's going to be really uh, fulfilling and if it's what you want to do there's nothing like it and you can't sort of pre-plan anything Mm. it's like a movable feast at all times well i hear that (laughs) i hear that your eyes are open about the challenge it's to embrace the challenge and to not be afraid of the challenge is that it yeah absolutely definitely and and also to look for the gifts there are so many gifts that you won't see if you stick too rigidly to things Mm. you know because you can always think well i've got that exact way of doing it and that's how i'm going to do it and i think people think directors think like that oh i'm a director i have to have a very fixed vision because i'm the director right but actually i think it's the complete opposite i think you have to be really open and fluid to be able to get the best for your project you've i always say to my lovely producer alexandra that i'm always looking for something better so if somebody offers something that i think is better than the idea i already had i'm going to take that because i want it to be the best it can be you're not threatened by an actor or an actress having ideas on set and trying new things that maybe were outside of what you were imagining never ever i love it i love ideas i love anyone giving me ideas that's great. You know, Sidney Lumet was famous for saying that as well. He said, you know, the guy at Craft Services could over here and have an idea and I'll take it and make it my own. <laughs> He's not close to. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Anything that can make anything better, because at the end of the day, you want what you're giving to the world. Whoever's buying a ticket or turning the TV on or choosing to spend the time on what you've made, you want to give them the absolute best version of that. And if that's solely your own vision for the music, the editing, the cinematography. It can't be the best because there's other people that are better than you at those things, right. at everything. So you've, you've got to take everything in. And I think the job of the director is just to, to be the filter. That's well said. Filmmaking is definitely a full contact sport, but hearing you speak, you really are present to that it's more so a team sport. 100%. Well, we are so glad uh, for having the best version of yourself here with us today. Thank you for taking the time, Heidi. We're very excited for the ongoing uh, development and hopefully production of some of these very cool projects from Carbon to Casey and Mary. Uh, we thank you for taking the time with us today on Moment to Moment. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.